0: The American Dream, the promise that life can be better for every person if he or she has the willingness to work hard, regardless of their background or social class, very much influenced Arthur Miller, particularly because he saw many people growing up that would never be able to realize that dream, no matter how hard they worked. He realized early on that not everyone had equal opportunity to succeed and experienced the consequences firsthand. What does it mean to live in a society that promises a lot yet guarantees nothing, he wondered. Arthur Miller once said that it was a tragedy of the common man. The main character in his story, Willie Loman, is a regular everyday guy, an aging traveling salesman weighed down by his sample case. With each trip, he's finding it increasingly difficult to cover his territory in search of the next big order. His mind is starting to slip but he still believes that his charm and optimism will make him rich. Nonetheless, the realities of life haunt him. For starters, he's ashamed that he can't pay the bills. And then there's the issue of being unfaithful to his wife. And furthermore, as he turns to his memories and delusions to combat any feelings of failure, he begins to lose touch with reality. In Willie Loman, Arthur Miller created a tragic hero 20th century style. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, tragedies, and the death of the American dream. I am your host, Jason Nimore Hardin, and today we explore the origins of Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman. Be seduced into thinking that that which does not make a profit is without value. The seeds of Death of a Salesman were planted decades before Arthur Miller stepped into his cabin to begin to write it, and before that, its creator had to come to be. Arthur Miller was born on October 17, 1915, in Harlem, New York City, as the second of three children of Augusta and Isidore Miller. His father was a salesman-turned-owner of the Miltex Coat and Suit Company, which was thriving enough under his management to provide the family with a spacious apartment on 110th Street in Harlem, a country bungalow, as well as a limousine and a driver. Selling was in the air through my boyhood, Arthur would later say. The whole idea of selling successfully was very important. But just as he was entering his teens, his father's business was wiped out by the Wall Street crash of 1929. The family lost nearly everything and was forced to move to Gravesend, Brooklyn. Isidore's response to this was silence and sleep. My father had trouble staying awake, Arthur would later comment. And while his father dealt with failure by escaping it, his son's response was anger. He had to postpone going to college for two years until 1934, because, as he said, nobody was in possession of the fair. He, however, understood perfectly well that it was not his father who angered him, but rather his failure to cope with the collapse of his fortunes. Later, in his biography, Miller wrote, Thus I had two fathers, the real one and the metaphoric, and the latter I resented because he did not know how to win out over the general collapse. Due to his family lacking the funds to send him to college after graduating in 1932 from Abraham Lincoln High School, he worked several menial jobs in order to pay for his college tuition at the University of Michigan. He majored in journalism and worked for the student newspaper, the Michigan Daily, as well as the satirical gargoyle humor magazine, Also during this time, he wrote his first play, No Villain. He soon switched his major to English and subsequently won the Avery Hopwood Award for No Villain. The award brought him his first real recognition and led him to consider that he could have a career as a playwright. It's clear that the depression and the after-effects of World War II influenced Miller to write plays about vulnerable, everyday people working and struggling to get ahead. He would later say, I think the tragic feeling is evoked in us when we are in the presence of a character who is ready to lay down his life, if need be, to secure one thing, his sense of personal dignity. A decade after his first play in 1947, after he'd completed another manuscript, All My Sons, which had been done in a very straightforward, realistic form, he felt that he could start to tread new territory. In particular, a kind of play which would allow him to treat time concurrently. From that, something very special would cultivate. Quote The best work that anybody ever writes is the work that is on the verge of embarrassing him, always. End quote. It was during an april weekend in 1948 when arthur miller at the time 33 years old began work on the cabin he had suddenly felt compelled to build the day before he waved goodbye to his first wife mary and their two young children in brooklyn new york and set off for roxbury connecticut there he intended on building a cabin on a hillock just behind the colonial house he had recently purchased for the family and which stood at the aptly named crossroads of Tefet, another name for hell, and gold mine. Despite never having built a building in his life, he felt an instinctive pull to do so. His impulse was to build it and then, I quote, to sit in the middle of it and shut the door and let things happen. And in the crux of hell and heaven, he got to work. Now, as he embarked on the challenge of building the cabin, He kept telling himself that as soon as he got the roof on and the windows in, he would start on the play he had brewing in his head. Being spring, everything was starting to bud and the weather was beautiful. It seemed like the exact rebirth he needed. He fashioned a desk out of an old door and as he sat down by it, his tools and nails were stashed away in a corner. The structure which would be referred to as his studio was unpainted and smelled of raw wood. All he knew about the play at this point was that it would be centered on a traveling salesman who would die at the end, and two lines which were, Willie? It's all right. I came back. He would later explain that these two lines captured the whole disaster that was the play in a nutshell, and as he worked away in the cabin, he kept repeating the lines like a kind of mantra. And the first act of the play proved to spill out of him. The morning he began writing, he went on writing through the day. He then took a dinner break and went right back to writing, working until 1 or 2 in the morning. Possessed by the ideas flourishing in his mind, he didn't feel like he was writing the story, but rather that he was writing what he was hearing in his head, which he literally was. Like a stenographer, he would take down the dialogue that would spark in his mind. Alia Kazan, the play's original director, wrote in his autobiography that Miller hadn't written the play. He had released it. It had been inside of him, stored up, waiting to be turned loose. By the end of the session that first day, his throat was sore from talking and shouting out the dialogue. He also didn't realize until going to bed that night that his eyes burned. He had been crying throughout the intense ordeal. In that first day, he had produced almost intact the first act of Death of a Salesman, though it didn't yet bear the name at that time. He originally intended on calling it inside of his head. This was at a time when he thought of staging it where the curtain would go up and you'd see the interior of a skull. The thought was that the actors would be walking around inside of his head, but it later seemed too mechanical, so he gave up the idea. While writing the piece, he kept a notebook which chronicled the play's creation. In the end, it would be a 60-page-long document which went in-depth into the motivations and development of the characters. This notebook is now kept with other documents at the University of Texas in Austin, Texas. After that initial spur of creativity came a six-week period where the writing slowed down immensely. It took much more of an effort to call forth the second act. The main challenge was to make the main character, Willie Loman, remember enough of his life and failures to make it so that it would seem feasible for him to take his own life by the end. In order to accomplish this, Arthur concluded that it would be wise to play around with the style and form of the play, one where the past and the present coalesced to form the dramatic arc, which had been something he had been wanting to do since the beginning of his writing journey. As he worked fervently through the plot and the characters, he used the notebook as a ballast. He would write, in every scene, remember his size, ugliness, remember his own attitude, remember pity. Willie longs to take off, be great. Willie wants his boys prepared for any life. Nobody will laugh at them, take advantage. They'll be big men. It's the big men who command respect. This was the way Miller would analyze the motives of the characters and flesh out their backstories. One major element he changed from what he had written in his notebook to the finished piece was a foreshadowing of Willie's suicidal thoughts at the beginning. Originally, the play was to begin at the top of the Empire State Building, with two guards talking about who would die that day. It was that kind of day, foggy with poor visibility, to the imagined jumper it would be like jumping into a cloud. Who will it be today? guard asked. Although the notebook begins with a series of choppy asides and outlines, it evolves to leaving no stone unturned and all the characters emerge sound and fully formed because of this deep exploration. The document also reveals Miller's deep contact with his inner voices. For instance, what appears in the last scene as a tight nine-line speech— A kind of a eulogy was mined from a much longer piece, which was as follows. A salesman doesn't build anything. He don't put a bolt to a nut or a seed in the ground. A man who doesn't build anything must be liked. He must be cheerful on bad days. Even calamities mustn't break through. Cause one thing, he has got to be liked. He don't tell you the law or give you medicine. So there's no rock bottom to your life. All you know is that on good days or bad, you got to come in cheerful. No calamity must be permitted to break through. Because one thing, always, you're a man who's got to be believed. You're way out there riding on a smile and a shoe shine, And when they start not smiling back, the sky falls in. And then you get a couple of spots on your hat and you're finished. Because there's no rock bottom to your life. Arthur's passion, as well as his subsequent flow, is apparent in all his notes for the play. Particularly surprising is the absence of cross-outs displaying his startling alertness. Miller would later explain how he wanted to start every scene at the last possible instant, no matter where that instant happened to be. The first lines of the play begin with Willie Loman's wife, Linda, asking, Willie? To which he replies, It's all right. I came back. Why? What happened? Did something happen, Willie? No, nothing happened. Only four lines into the play and the emergency of the situation is already apparent. We're right into the action. He didn't want the audience's response to be, what happens next and why? But rather, oh God, of course. And Willie Loman's particular terror goes to the core of American individualism in which the reputable self and the issue of wealth are hopelessly tangled. A man can't go out the way he came in, Willie says in the play to Ben. A man has got to add up to something. A lowman, who, at age 60, has no job, no money, no loyalty from his boys, is sensationally lacking in assets and a sense of blessing. He envies those who are blessed. He feels unblessed, but he's striving for it. Arthur Miller would say of his character. Although Willie's wife famously says of him that attention must be paid, he feels invisible to the world. I'm not noticed, he says. Later, Linda confides to the boys, for five weeks he's been on straight commission, like a beginner, an unknown. As Miller later put it, the whole idea of people failing with us is that they can no longer be loved. You haven't created a persona which people will pay for, see, experience, or come close to. It's almost like death. You have a deathly touch. People who succeed are loved because they exude some magical formula for fending off destruction, fending off death. It's the most brutal way of looking at life that one can imagine because it discards anyone who does not measure up. It wants to destroy them. It's been going on since the Puritan times. You are beyond the blessing of God. You're beyond the reach of God. That God rewards those who deserve it. It's a moral condemnation that goes on. You don't want to be near this failure. In his notebook, he wrote, it is the combination of guilt, of failure, hate, and love, all in conflict that he resolves by accomplishing a $20,000 death. In death, Willie is worth more than in life. His suicide is the ultimate expression of his confusion of success with love and also of his belief in winning at all costs. At first, Miller saw the $20,000 of insurance money as cash to put Willie Loman's son, Biff, on the straight and narrow. My boy's a thief. With $20,000, he'd stop it, he wrote in the notebook. Instead, Willie's suicide, the final show of force and fraud, in keeping with his demented competitive fantasies, is pitched on a more grandiose note. Arthur would later tell that he knew that he had a great play the day he finished it. He sent it to the man who would be the director, Elia Kazan, and he quickly got a call back. Kazan told him that he'd read the play and found it to be incredibly sad, but that he wanted to bring it to the stage the following September. With that, they were off to the races. On the last page of his notebook, he scribbled a short speech to give to the original cast. I want you all to know now that the cannons are quiet, that this production has been the most gratifying I have known. I believe you are the finest ever gathered for any play, and I am exceedingly proud and gratified not only for myself, but for the American theater. Death of a Salesman opened in Philadelphia and when the curtains came down, nothing happened. No clapping, no standing ovation. People just sat there. It was a good two or three minutes before the first person stood up, men and women all sitting with handkerchiefs over their faces. It was a funeral, Miller would later say. The impact had been tremendous. Although Willie Lowman is a salesman, we're never told what product he lugs around in his two large sample cases. A theater once stopped Arthur and asked him, what's he selling? You never say what he's selling. To which he replied, well, himself. That's who's in the valise. Later, he added, you sell yourself. You sell the goods. You become the commodity. On a more trivial note, It had been speculated that the surname of Willie Lowman came from the words "low" and Man. It in fact came from somewhere very different. Miller said that around 1953 or 1954, he was walking down 42nd Street in Manhattan, where there were many old movie houses at the time. While walking, he saw a poster from the Fritz Lang movie, The Last Will of Dr. Mabuse, he could remember having seen the movie in the 1930s, 1940s, and felt inclined to revisit it. The detective in the movie was named Loman, but it would only be later, three or four years after he wrote his play, that he made the connection, thinking, my God, that's where I got that name. It surprised him when people said Lo, man." later on. It was nothing like that. It came from Fritz Lang's movie after the success of the play his mother augusta found an early manuscript entitled in memoriam which shares many similarities with death of a salesman in memoriam was an autobiographical piece that miller had written when he was about 17 years old it concerned a miltech salesman named shunzite who had once asked arthur for subway fare when the young man was helping him carry samples to an uptown buyer The real Shanzite killed himself the next day by throwing himself in front of the L train. This seems to be the most obvious origins of what would later become Willie Lohman. Then, in 1952, while rummaging through his papers, he found a 1937 notebook in which he had made embryonic sketches of Willie, Biff, and Willie's second son, Happy. It was the same family, he said, of the 20 pages of realistic dialogue but I was unable in that straightforward, realistic form to contain what I thought of as the man's poetry, that is, the zigzag shots of his mind. Death of a salesman caught the spirit of self-aggrandizement being fed by what Miller called the biggest boom in the history of the world. Americans had struggled through the depression, then fought a world war to keep the nation's democratic dream alive. That dream was, broadly speaking, a dream of self-realization. America, with its ideal of freedom, challenged its citizens to see how far they could go in a lifetime, to end up big, as Willie says. By the mid-1950s, Arthur Miller was famous not only for his plays, but also for when he was called to appear before Senator Joseph McCarthy's House Un-American Activities Committee. Just as other Americans had been subpoenaed, he too was asked to identify writers who he believed were communists. He stood his ground, held to his principles, and pretty much risked his career by refusing to name names. The result? He was convicted of contempt of Congress. The conviction was later overturned in 1958. Now, a theater critic at the time said that his refusal to cooperate showed the measure of the man who has written these high-minded plays. Arthur continued to write plays, articles, film scripts, books, and speeches throughout his life, exploring the great political, social, and moral questions of our time. After a long life, he died on the evening of February 10, 2005, at the age of 89, of bladder cancer and heart failure at his home in Roxbury, Connecticut. Right next to the cabin where he had built and created, his masterpiece, his death marked the 56th anniversary of the Broadway debut of Death of a Salesman. Arthur Miller remains to be a giant of the American theater and his play, Death of a Salesman, still resonates today with its validity and poignancy and still holds the aura of the flip side of the American dream. As usual, let me leave you with a final quote from the master playwright. If a person measures his spiritual fulfillment in terms of cosmic visions surpassing peace of mind or ecstasy, then he is not likely to know much spiritual fulfillment. If, however, he measures it in terms of enjoying a sunrise, being warmed by a child's smile, or being able to help someone have a better day, then he is likely to know much spiritual fulfillment." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason and Moore Hardin. We at house of words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words or paypal.me house of words podcast. Alternatively, <laughs> You can head over to subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez, narrated and edited by me, Jason Lemohr Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemoor Harden.